The North African Church Father Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning that martyrdom drives the gospel. Uh, a few years ago, Becky and I had the privilege of sitting with a man who shared that he thought his life might be in danger, and he was shortly thereafter martyred over in Malaysia. This morning, we're going to hear a little bit about martyrdom. Brad Mullet comes to us from Colorado and from The Orchard, which is the Evangelical Free Church Network in Harlington Heights. Uh, Brad grew up in Boulder and then went to high school in Vienna. And over there, he is a licensed aircraft mechanic and a pilot and was a Russian linguist. He and his lovely wife, Carrie, are here this morning. And they are part of, uh, they helped plant a church in Springfield, Missouri. Then Brad eventually was on the mission field in Budapest for 13 years. Part of that is country leader, and then part of that is regional leader, and part of that is city team leader. In 2013, then they transitioned to the orchard in Arlington Heights, uh, free church there. And Becky and I had the chance, in fact, our first trip to Budapest almost 10 years ago, we got to sit with Brad for a couple hours and just chat with him. They, uh, Brad and Carrie have four kids, and they have 12 grandkids. Their tribe is expanding. Uh, he is passionate about the Lord. He is passionate about the gospel. When, I con- when we contacted him uh, this last year to speak, I said, do not hold back. High octane, bring the thunder. And so we welcome him to our pulpit this morning, Brad Mullet. Good morning again to everyone. Thank you for the privilege to speak today on this uh, missions weekend. I want to share a bit of my background. I know Jay already has, but uh, there's a bit in the story about how the Lord used uh, this church very wonderfully in our lives and many of its members to encourage us on a cross-cultural church planting path to Hungary. I think it was in 97 and 98 that our, our paths first crossed with the Evangelical Free Church, Crystal Lake. It was John and Jessica Seacrest that were missionaries being sent out from Arlington Heights, and this church supported them, and the church uh, that we helped plant supported them. And at John's request, a year later, 1997, uh, I led a prayer team to Hungary, and in his words, to spy out the land. Uh, I think in 1998, this church sent a prayer team. It was led by Bob Page, if I remember correctly. And at that time, prayer teams were asking the Lord to send workers into the harvest. And shortly after we returned, requests came in for us to go long-term to Hungary. And I figured those requests were made to everyone because John was a desperate man. He was all alone and hungry. Well, people had in their minds, I say churches and individuals, to send us. But at that time, I had in my mind to fly and fix airplanes. But one Sunday, someone in our home church stopped me on the sidewalk after service and asked, what is keeping you from the mission field? Well, I said, I've been preparing my whole life to be a missionary pilot. That's the way I think God would have me serve him. And with a wave of 
the hand, this person looked me square in the eye and said, God has other people who can fly and fix airplanes better than you. He's shown you that uh, you're a church planter, a servant, a teacher, and that's how he's going to use you. A year and a half later, our family, we were sent and fully supported by 11 different churches and 70 individuals to Hungary as career missionaries. And when I think back, I thought I was preparing myself for how I would serve God when all the while he was faithfully preparing me for how he wanted to be served. And it was really God's word that was preached that convinced us to go. Uh, God used my older brother who led me to the Lord when I was young. My pastors, Sunday school teachers, they had equipped me, as Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says. God's people pray, pastors and teachers equip us, and the Lord uses his people to send workers into the harvest. So this church, the orchard, the springs that we help plant, and many others are still partners in Hungary to this day after 27 years. You send and have sent many teams, workers, and much encouragement over the years. You honor the Lord in your steadfastness to the gospel, and I thank you. So Carrie and I, with our four kids, served in Hungary for more than 13 years, as was mentioned, when the Lord called us to a new location. I got a call from the senior pastor at Orchard, formerly uh, Arlington Heights Evangelical Free Church, and their missions pastor has retired. And they invited me to be the new director of global ministries. And I still remember what Pastor Colin told me on the phone when I'm sitting on my couch in Budapest. He said, Brad, I think you will find that you can do more for the spread of the gospel around the world from Chicago than you can from Budapest. And that struck me as something worthy of consideration. Can you imagine doing more for the spread of the gospel around the world? But I'll tell you what I was thinking. What, mission, what missionaries leave the field when they can speak the language, when they're fully supported, when great progress is being made, uh, and when things are going well? Well, it was another decision point in my life, much like the first when we moved to Hungary. Where do my loyalties lie? And that's a question I'll ask you. Let me explain by illustration in the words of a guy named Craig Larson, a resident of Arlington Heights. He said it this way. On the way to work, I noticed some interesting signs on the SUV in front of me. The spare tire mounted on the back had the words Texas Longhorns and an orange steer head icon on it. And the trailer hitch displayed another steer head icon and the word Texas. And the license plate was bordered with the words Longhorns and on top, University of Texas at the bottom, but something didn't add up. The license plate frame was screwed into a Land of Lincoln license plate with a picture of old Abe on it. This man says, I live in Illinois, and the SUV's license plate showed this driver now did too. So I assumed the owner of this SUV had moved, but had not yet identified with his new home and he had no plans of changing loyalties. <laughs> so when we move, we often go through a slow transition. 
Uh, a transition from one loyalty to another, perhaps loyalties to our new home. And so it is as a Christian, when we come to Christ, the kingdom of God becomes our home. But the kingdom of this world does not easily leave our hearts. The great challenge of the Christian is to overcome divided loyalties and fully identify with God's kingdom. Almost 11 years ago, by faith, we moved from Hungary to Chicago, and we began serving at the Orchard. And it was really God's kindness that Mark and Jody Revell, supported by this church, led the expansion of the ministry in Hungary. And after we left then, Cassidy Baker, now, thank you for supporting them. And thank you for helping them by sending many more uh, to them in Hungary. At the orchard, the Lord was still using his word through the pastor's preaching in the church, and we are growing in a deeper understanding of the gospel and the love for the Lord. And it has helped us to see and to act on where our true loyalties lie. This is why I've chosen to preach from Mark 8, the passage read to you. So let's look at Jesus' teaching. I know you'll be encouraged and helped. Uh, Let's start with three items of value in this passage. The three items I'll touch on. The whole world is one. It is of some value. A man's soul is of some value. The son of man and his gospel, a whole nother value. The whole world is of some value. Verse 36 says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What is meant by the whole world? The whole world includes possessions of every kind, perhaps a career path, relationships, people, experiences. All of these have value. I think of my most precious relationship, my wife. She's more precious than gold to me. I think of our children and grandchildren, so valuable. My parents, extended family, valuable. Add to the people that you're thinking of as your most precious possessions. Add to that maybe a property somewhere, your first house, maybe your last house, or a car, or a motorcycle, or a truck, or your job, valuable, no question. Friends are valuable, work is valuable, inventions are valuable, technological advances are valuable, medical advances, new hips, new knees, new heart valves, all items of some value. My dad, for instance, got a cow valve uh, installed a few years ago, and amazing, he's still kicking, valuable. You see, it comes naturally to us to lay up treasures on earth. We accumulate stuff. And God's word speaks directly to this in Matthew 6, where it says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, the whole world, all of the treasure that you can lay up has some value. But everything one can gain in the world ages and loses value. Moths eat it, rust corrodes it, thieves steal it. Nothing gets newer. You notice that? Everything deteriorates. Lamentation says only God's mercies 
are new every morning. God's word also tells us what we can do with our possessions. Let's look at Luke 12, 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy, and thus provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Now let me share with you an example of someone who gave to the needy and sold their possessions. So a missionary family got kicked out of a country in the Far East back in the 1940s, and they caught a ship all the way back to the U.S., and they landed in Seattle. They had four children, and the only car that they could afford that would fit the family and their possessions was a used hearse. So they bought that hearse, and they drove that hearse to eastern Montana, where the hearse broke down. The family stayed with my great-grandmother, and the man, they thought, I guess at the time, it was a good idea to invite him to be the Bible camp speaker for two weeks. And the idea was that his car could then be repaired while he was doing camp speaker duties. My grandpa had just bought a new family station wagon and he decided to give his new car to this family. And as my mom told the story, she was 14, she said her brother Gordon and her were told to go out, clean out the car, everything that belonged to us, take it out. We're giving this new car to a missionary family. And she said that was difficult because that was a brand new car. They were all pretty excited about it. But here's what Grandpa Frank told the family. He said, when you get to the port, you can sell that car and use the money for fare back to the field where God will have you serve. That's an example of how one uses their possessions for the advance of the gospel. You can probably think of other examples. I think of when the ministry center in Hungary was purchased and churches, individuals in those churches gave incredible amounts of money for that building to be purchased. And God has used it most advantageously in an area of the city of Budapest uh, that was devoid of any churches or the gospel. This brings us to the second item of value. There's something of greater value than the whole world. It's your life. Your life is of greater value than the whole world. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The implied answer to both of these questions is nothing. Absolutely nothing. It doesn't profit a man to spend his life accumulating possessions because no part or whole of the world can be exchanged for your soul. Your life is valuable. Your soul is valuable. It's more valuable than the whole world. You are valuable. You're valuable to your spouse. You're valuable to your parents. You're valuable to your children, to your friends to your coworkers, to your boss, perhaps to your employees, but you are valuable to God. God's word tells us this. Psalm 139, 14. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your soul knows this very well. 
The days of your life were written, every one of them, before any of them ever were. So this speaks to the preciousness of you in the eyes of your creator. And it says you, your soul, knows this very well. Now Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to the crowd here. He's saying the world is of some value, but souls are of greater value than the whole world. But there's a third item in this passage. There's something of greater value than all the possessions you could amass. And they're more valuable than your soul. Look at verse 35. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So what is meant by my sake? And who is the son of man that is saying this to this crowd? And even to us. You see, Jesus is of greatest value. In Daniel 7, we're given a glimpse of the Son of Man, and I'll read this for you. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there's someone here of greater value than the whole world and of greater value than life, more valuable than your life and all of your possessions. He's of greater value because if we lose our lives for his sake, we gain. That's what verse 35 says. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So what is the gospel and how does it work? Well, the gospel is the good news about Jesus of Nazareth. It's the good news about who he is. It's the good news about what he did, what he does, and what he will do. You see, Jesus is of supreme value because the gospel is first and foremost all about Jesus. The four most prominent ways the gospel is explained and directly communicated to others are in four words, Lord, sin, Savior, faith. Four words in four sentences, and I want to take them one at a time, for the good of your soul and the nourishment of it. First word is Lord. Jesus is of supreme value because he is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Nobody makes him Lord. He is the Lord. Maybe you've heard, like I have, somebody says in their testimony they came to Christ at an early age, but they made Jesus Lord when they were 18 or 20 or 25 or what have you. Now, we understand what they mean, but more helpful, more accurate language would probably be something, it finally dawned on me that Jesus is Lord. He was Lord all the time but it finally occurred to me. Romans 1.4 says, he's the one who was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. His dominion is everlasting. His kingdom shall never end. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and is invisible, We're talking about the Lord. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Second word, sin. First word, Lord. Second word, sin. Jesus is of supreme value because he will rid the world of sin. Jesus will make the world right concerning sin. Sin is more than just the bad things that we think and say and do. It's a power that exerts itself in this world. Original sin is defined in the Bible as a defiling presence that was unleashed on all of creation by Adam in the Garden of Eden. Our corrupt nature dishonors God's holiness. Paul again, Romans 7, 19, he says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. That's because of sin. Sin is a presence that reigns over human beings in this entire fallen realm that we now live. It reigns over us. It reigns over creatures, our environment, social institutions, everything. It threw the entire universe into discord, decay, disease, disability, disorder, disaster, and death. That's sin. Acts 17, 31. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. You see, because Jesus is making the world right concerning sin. Third word. Savior. We have Lord, sin, Savior. Jesus is of supreme value because he is the only Savior of sinners. The salvation message of the gospel is that Jesus is the only Savior of sinners whom God will accept to take away every drop of his wrath that has been storing up for any and all of your sins against him. Jesus is a Savior who did so much more than die for your personal sins. The gospel is good news that gives us hope that Jesus will one day in the future eliminate the presence of sin from human beings and the entire world. He will make all things new. He's the only one who can do that. He's the only Savior of sinners. You see, the salvation message of the gospel tells us that Jesus is going to return to resurrect his people and transform the entire universe, overcoming original sin and all of its effects on creation. Incredible. Jesus' victory over sin was so comprehensive that he is able to supernaturally deliver people from their sin-infected lives and the sin-dominated fallen world. Jesus, he's the only savior of sinners. Fourth word, faith. We have Lord, sin, Savior. Fourth word, the gospel, faith. Jesus is of supreme value, and you can know him by faith. Jesus is of supreme value. We can know him by faith. The blessings of the Savior, Jesus Christ, are applied to sinners through faith. You see, faith is the personal response to the gospel that God has ordained and that he desires. Faith is our ongoing assurance, our trust, 
our reliance upon what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. Faith is a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The Apostle Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So this is the gospel in four clear words. Lord, sin, save your faith. This This good news message makes the dead in sin alive, sets the slaves of sin free, and makes the enemies of God friends. That's why for generations, God's children have lost their lives for Jesus' sake in the Gospels, using their position or their possessions and their lives to maximum advantage for something of supreme value. Now, with permission, I want to share the following story with you. You may know uh, the people in the story. One of our first meetings when Carrie and I came to the orchard 10 years ago was with a family whose son and wife were being sent out as missionaries. They had invited Carrie and I to their house for lunch after church, and we met the young couple, John and Teresa. And they had their little three-week-old daughter with them. And they were headed to Afghanistan in the coming months. They had visited there, and they'd served there a few times after college, And they'd grown a love for those people, and they wanted to proclaim the gospel there, and they wanted to see souls saved. A year later, John's parents, Gary and Betty, told me that they were going to visit them and to see where John and Teresa were serving. And of course, to see their granddaughter. Now, John was a guest lecturer at the computer science lab at Kabul University, where he was also directing a health clinic. And his wife was a registered nurse in a local hospital serving with a doctor, I think a pediatrician from Chicago. So it was Thursday, April 24th, 2014, that I got an early call in the morning. It woke me up out of a dead sleep, and I was told three men have been killed in Kabul. Gary the dad, John, his son, and the doctor. Their own Afghan security police guard opened fire on them as they came out of the security screening booth to go into the hospital. Teresa was just coming out of the ladies' area, and she was mowed down in a spray of bullets and critically injured. Amazingly, she lived and was airlifted to Germany with her mother-in-law and the baby. You can only imagine the chain of events that that set off, that tragedy, the emotions, the questions it raised. You see, the orchard was planted in 1953. Gary and John would be the orchard's first martyrs in 61 years as a church. And the question in everyone's mind was, why? Why did their own security guard do that? He shot himself in the stomach right after he shot them. 
And the hospital staff rushed out and grabbed him and took him in and patched him up. He lived. Why did they go to Kabul in the first place? Why didn't they just stay in Illinois and gain the world? Imagine for a moment what John and Teresa's life could have been like. He graduated from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana and worked for years at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications. Brilliant guy. A research unit of the university. He had this magnificent career in IT ahead of him. Teresa, a registered nurse with a promising medical career ahead of her, they could have spent their lives amassing wealth, living comfortably and spending good times with loved ones and having wonderful experiences. Now she was a widow with a one-year-old. The church was packed with people for the memorial service. Many in attendance, including friends and extended family, were not Christians. And the question why was in the front of everyone's mind and on the tip of everyone's tongue. How could sense be made of this tragedy. But there was a better question to be asked that day, and Pastor Collins shared it for the encouragement of everyone. The better question was, was it worth it? This family had already answered the question. They were willing to lose their lives for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. They understood the value of the world, They understood the value of their own lives, and they understood the supreme value of Jesus. It was a tremendous loss for their spouses and family, but it was also a sobering encouragement and a reminder to everyone in the church that day. Death had no victory. Those men were instantaneously in the presence of the Lord. They gained. I want to end by asking you three questions. First question, where do your loyalties lie? The great challenge of the Christian life is overcoming divided loyalties. You're faced with clamoring voices from all sides demanding your loyalty. Perhaps you've drifted off course. Let these words of Jesus help you resume the true course in reliance upon him. The second question, are you spending your days on things that matter less than your soul and the souls of others? Are you spending your days on things that matter less than your soul and the souls of others? You have nothing in your possession presently or can ever hope to obtain in the days that you have left that you can exchange for your soul when you're called to stand before the Lord. So look to Jesus today. He gave his life to save your life. He became poor so that you might become rich. You can call on the Lord right now. You can turn from sin right now. 
because he broke sin's power over you. Turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior in faith and trust him to deal with your sin. So first question, where do your loyalties lie? Second question, are you spending your days, your time on things that are of less value than your soul and the souls of others? Third and final question, what will you do for Christ and for the advance of his gospel? What will you do for Christ and for the advance of his gospel? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is loyal to God the Father. He's never had divided loyalties. He never drifts. The good news for us is that Jesus stayed true to the glory of God. He laid down his life of his own accord. He conquered sin. He conquered death when he rose to life. And now, Jesus is claiming a harvest of souls to eternal life. So what will you do next for Christ and for the advance of his gospel? Let me pray. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, the word spoken by our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I ask that you would give these servants in this congregation a fixed disposition to go forth and spend their lives for you. Lord, please grant such circumstances that best enable them to serve you in this world. Help them not to become discouraged. Enable them to undertake some task for you, Lord, in the days ahead that will refresh and even animate their souls. Help them to endure all hardships and labor and to willingly suffer for your name. Finally, Lord, give these servants boldness to speak the gospel and especially to grasp the multitude of souls you are saving. We give you glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.